Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. And today we're going to be talking about a blockbuster story that you might remember from 2021, when it was dramatically announced, including by the New York Times, no less, that a mass grave containing the remains of 215 Indigenous children had been found in Kamloops, British Columbia, on the grounds of a former residential school one of the infamous institutions where Indigenous children once were sent as part of a national Canadian plan to assimilate Indigenous peoples. You may also remember that the story caused an explosion of national self-recrimination in Canada, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau going down on one knee to place a teddy bear on the grounds of one First Nation, and then lowering the flags on Canadian federal buildings for, astonishingly, more than five months. The story spread like wildfire in the Canadian media that these weren't just the graves of Indigenous children, which would be bad enough, but that these were murder victims. Babies thrown into furnaces, secret midnight burials with Indigenous children woken up to dig graves for their brothers and sisters in the apple orchard of that Kamloops school. It was like something out of a horror film, and Canadians braced for the sight of bodies being plucked out of the ground, now that the location of these child graves had supposedly been identified with ground-penetrating radar. But then something very strange happened. Days passed, then weeks, then months, and it's now been more than a year since that first supposed discovery of 215 presumed child graves. And in that time, not a single actual body has been found, nor any human remains. It's also emerged that even First Nations leaders themselves had never said there was any mass grave, which is what the New York Times told us had been discovered. And the claim remains uncorrected on the New York Times website to this day. Of course, bodies may eventually be discovered. And certainly no one is doubting that terrible things happen to Indigenous children at residential schools, including unconscionable sexual abuse at many schools. But there's never been any evidence of any sort of murder campaign, which is what was alleged by urban legends and conspiracy theories that seem to be at least in part at the root of the social panic that's played out in the Canadian media over the last 14 months. And now, for the first time, we're starting to see a conversation in the mainstream Canadian media about how so many reporters got this story so wrong. And this process of self-examination is being led by Terry Glavin, a reporter at the National Post, one of Canada's leading newspapers. His 6,000-word May 26 story, The Year of the Graves, was a landmark piece of journalism, pulling together the reasons why many reporters came to believe stories that, in retrospect, now seem suspect. The ingredients included journalists who wanted to be on the cutting edge of social justice, a Canadian Prime Minister posturing for voters in advance of a late 2021 federal election, Indigenous academics who themselves were wary of being seen as traitors to their own cause, and perhaps most of all, a Canadian intellectual class that seized on the apparent news as proof of their new national narrative, in which Canada was no longer the happy, multicultural, sunny alternative to the United States, but rather a deeply racist, colonialist, and even ghoulishly murderous settler state. Terry Glavin is a reporter for the National Post and other major publications. He runs a substack called The Real Story, 
all the news I couldn't fit in print. I spoke to him last week over Skype. Here are excerpts from our conversation. When people talk about Indigenous residential schools, for people who are outside Canada, please explain what that means. Well, Canada, after 1867 and the jurisdictions between the provinces and the federal government was sorted out, there were a whole bunch of uh, religious institutions across the country that were schools. They were boarding schools, they were residential schools, sometimes day schools. And the federal government got jurisdiction over Indians and lands reserved for Indians. And so the federal government took over the residential schools in the years after 1867. What then were called Indians, now we use terms... Indigenous, Aboriginal, First Nations. Indian residential schools is what they were called. The the government didn't actually run them, right? More than half were run by Catholic religious orders. And uh, one of the more prominent religious orders in the the Catholic uh, institutions was the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And this is actually a really interesting story because... You know, it's the way it's usually said is that uh, the church was carrying out a federal policy of obliteration and cultural assimilation and turning Indians, as they were called, into white people. I would observe that there's a there's a central paradox to this, and it's that at the outset, particularly in the case of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate, which was the religious order that ran, I think, most of the Catholic schools and most of the residential schools were Catholic, it was the opposite. They were not interested at all in assimilating Indigenous people into settler culture. The whole point was to keep Indigenous people apart from what Father Fouquet and other oblates described as the corrupting influences of bourgeois culture. And there was a kind of an indigenized Catholicism that was evolving a kind of a syncretic Catholicism that was evolving. You have to understand the Oblates, unlike the Benedictines or the Jesuits or the Franciscans, they're a relatively recent religious order. They emerged from the Great Terror in France, and they believed that the church and the, and the faith could only be revived in the company of the wretched of the earth, the poor, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable and, and oppressed. And the way they ended up in Canada is they actually got chased out of the United States. They were understood during the Indian Wars in the United States to be too close to the Indians. And uh, some of the tribes thought that they were taking the sides of other tribes or they were taking the sides of the U.S. cavalry. But generally, the, the, the opinion of the white people in the States was, you got to get these people out of here. They're siding with the Indians. So the Oblates were driven north. And it was only after the federal government took over the jurisdiction over the schools that the churches were obliged and were willing participants in many instances in that process of cultural obliteration. The federal government was all about, you know, industrial schools and integrating them into the proletariat of the emerging society. If somebody is listening to this podcast from a place like Ireland, and they're, they're familiar with scandals involving religious schools. Sure. Is that at all analogous? Yes, very much. Although in, in this case, there's a targeted indigenous angle to it. Well, in, in Ireland, it was also a targeted indigenous population. Could, could you explain that? The native Irish are, generally speaking, Roman Catholic. Irish Catholicism is a kind of a syncretic, indigenized Catholicism, if you like. And, and that was the project that was quite violently opposed 
by the British authorities in, in the country. And of course, they outlawed the religion and Catholics weren't allowed to practice their faith for about 150 years, I think it was. And, you know, they had hedge schools and they used to, they, they would observe their devotions up in the up in the hills and so on. So, I mean, there are parallels in, for instance, the recent scandals, if you like, the mother and child homes in Ireland, the priests, uh, the predators, abusers, being shifted from one diocese to another. We saw that in Boston, you know, that was where it erupted with cardinal law and all of that stuff that spread out across across the Catholic world. And it's not, it's not clear to me whether or not the abuses that occurred, sexual abuse, pedophilia that occurred in the residential schools was markedly different. I don't want to let the church off the hook here. Uh, it was bad everywhere. And I don't know that it, that aspect of the persecution of Indigenous people was unique to residential school. But I think what I would observe is that putting aside the sexual predation, even if there had been none of that abuse that took place, the project of forcing kids away from their community. The federal project was cultural genocide, in my opinion. In international law, physical extermination of a people is not the only threshold for, for genocide. In the case of Canada, it's, it's kind of curious and complicated because a lot of the, the what you might call the genocidal arguments were predicated on the assumption that in order to prevent the physical extinction of the people, it was essentially necessary to turn them into white people, right? Speaking English or French, living in settled communities, bourgeois values, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think one of the things that is curious, uh, and I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate, we, we talk about intergenerational trauma. You hear this term, the destruction of the family. And this is why it's so antithetical even to Catholicism and why so many Catholics are outraged by what has happened here. Because if you take these kids and you put them in these institutions and then they go back and maybe they have kids and then they have kids, they don't know what parenting is really all about. People take for granted that parenting is just this natural thing that we know how to do. But a lot of it is just copying what you experienced. And if you didn't experience anything in the form of parenting... You don't know how to do it. Yeah. The other thing, too, that I think is important to remember, and I don't think this can be underemphasized, you know, you'll hear a lot of, you know, I don't know if I want to call them apologists, but you'll hear people saying, well, you know, the indigenous people, they invited the church in, they wanted these schools built, they, they sent their children to, the, to, to these schools, it, it's not true that these, the children were ripped out of their arms and forced to go to the schools, that may have happened in a handful of cases, but, you know, you'll hear people sometimes talk like, apologists, if you like, talk like that. And, and to some extent, that's true. But what that hides, and this is something that is unique to Catholicism, is that th there's seven sacraments in the church. The priest, that's the power of the priest. One of those sacraments, ironically, is the sacrament of reconciliation. That's what it's called. Confession. You open up to your priest in a way that you don't open up to your best friend, to your parents, to your brothers and sisters. The violation of trust, I think, that is the, the worst crime that was committed in those days. And certainly and most obviously in the case of, of physical and sexual abuse. Indigenous people trusted the church. They trusted their priests. And for a great many indigenous people, that trust was, was betrayed in the worst possible way. And I think this is something that's 
it's kind of hard to explain to Protestants, but it's it's a big deal. Normally, when I talk to other Canadians about this, they talk about this as sort of a malignancy of Canadian history. And I mean, I don't think you're avoiding that at all, but you're you're also putting it into context in the larger Catholic sphere. Yeah. One thing, and I made this clear in the introduction, is that if I just wanted to talk about residential schools, you know, with all due respect, I wouldn't have you. I'd probably have an Indigenous person on. Right. But we're not really talking about residential schools. We are talking about the coverage of residential schools. I remember when I was writing about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which was the big deal. And that report was in 2015. You know, we're always kind of trying to work through it. And then we forget about it. There was the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples in the, in the 1990s. There was the, the, the apology, independent assessment process that the Harper government went through, which kicked off the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which reported in, in, in 2015. It included four recommendations specific to residential school graves and missing children. They counted up, I think, 3,201 was the number of names of children. And the way that's usually reported is who died at residential schools that they know of. But that's actually not what they said. They said there's 3,201 who died after being enrolled at residential schools. And they could find where those kids died in slightly less than half the cases and also where they were buried. And, you know, they were buried on their home reserves and so on. So one of the strange things about what's happened since last year is that people may, may well be looking in all the wrong places for whatever children may be missing. And it's not clear, not at all clear, how many children are missing and who they are exactly. Putting the numbers aside, if you were an Indigenous child going to residential schools, is it correct that you did have a higher chance of dying during your school Oh my years? God, yes. Because I think for a lot of people, the, the bottom line is there are hundreds, probably thousands of Indigenous kids who died because they went oh, to residential schools. Oh, goodness, school. yes. And I, I think this gets us into some of the maybe more lurid and speculative coverage of the graves issue in 2021. I mean, we know that there was a lot of untreated tuberculosis. We know that there was substandard medical care, indifference to unhygienic conditions and so forth. To your knowledge, at any of these schools, was there a campaign of mass murder? Of course not. Well, you, you say, of course not, but... A lot of the coverage we've seen over the last 14 months either strongly suggests or tells us outright that there was like babies thrown into furnaces and um, some pretty crazy stuff. Really crazy stuff. And, and the thing that really makes me angry about that, and it does make me angry, I'll confess to it. I have more than just an opinion about it. I have anger about it. I know people who were viciously sexually abused in residential schools. And I don't like it when their genuine suffering documented criminal trials, the whole thing, is conflated with these horror stories that are floating around out there that have no basis in reality. We have to distinguish between what we know and what we're being obliged to believe. So tell us what we know. This, this gets straight to the issue of the coverage that we've seen that has brought the Pope to Canada. And it starts in Kamloops, I don't even know if it was even a press release, you know. I, I, I only say that because I'm not, I, I have no evidence at all throughout all of this that this was something that any individual First Nation or group of First Nations 
decided to sort of spring on Canada. See, right? there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to task on that a little, Terry, because so in your article, the narrative you gave, you were admirably careful to talk about how a lot of this was like a media phenomenon and not so much the fault of First Nations. However, I went back and looked at the first, I think it does qualify as a press release, that it went up uh, May 27th, 2021, and was is from the, the Kamloops First Nation. The Kamloops, it's Rose Casimir, the chief, yeah. And that statement pretty much said outright, we have found the remains of 215 children, strongly suggested or said outright, you know, these kids have been killed. She said they discovered the remains, which it's just not true. The mistake that Rose Casimir made is she said something like, we've confirmed the truth of the preliminary findings. <laughs> and she also used the word confirmed, which she, I, I think in retrospect, she'd admit, I spoke with her last week, that she should never have said. Because by the Tuesday, she was already saying, oh, hold on a minute. We didn't say mass grave. And also, this is all very preliminary. And this is the GPR stuff. And she was already walking it back. And, and I think this is really important. This is critical for people to understand why the Pope is here and what has happened over the last year. Kamloops was like a meteor hitting. It was huge. It was just, And it also is interesting in that there had been these stories going around from the 19, late 1990s about this archipelago of secret mass graves around residential schools. And it was kind of percolating under the surface. And I did a fairly in-depth expose of the crazy defrocked United Church priest who was saying these things. The Aboriginal People's Television Network also did a, an expose of the guy. But it was always still kind of floating around, right? There were kids who would tell each other, you know, scare stories about the orchard. And this is important because what happened last May, it's like, oh, here we have evidence of all of this weird stuff that had been floating around out there. So, sorry, I have you. This is the office of the chief. This is the press release they put out May 27th. It is with a heavy heart that Chief Roseanne Casimir confirms an unthinkable loss that was spoken about but never documented by the Kamloops Indian Residential School. This past weekend, with the help of ground-penetrating radar specialists, the stark truth of the preliminary findings came to light. The confirmation of the remains of 215 children who were... Stu this is... It's absolutely not true, what she said. Um, well... She didn't find remains. Stark truth of the... They didn't, they didn't find remains. Stark truth of the preliminary findings. Uh, come on. No, well, look, okay, listen. The thing about Kamloops that makes this weird is that this was the meteor hitting the earth. The New York Times, for God's sake, and just about every, you know, all the major media around the world had this shock, horror, mass grave discovered. That's the thing to pay attention to. People, all kinds of people say things. But it wasn't a meteor strike. To apply your metaphor, it was somebody saying a meteor hit this territory and everyone running without anybody checking to go see if a meteor actually hit. That's the point. In fairness to this First Nation, lots of people make claims that are speculative. Lots of activists, lots of local politicians say things that, that aren't true. It's the job of responsible media to fact check it. Yes. It's, to me, it's not scandalous that the chief of a First Nation believes that there's 215 kids buried under the ground. And by the way, maybe there are some kids buried there. We don't know. It's not a scandal that someone believes this. You can see all kinds of historical reasons she believes it. The scandal to me 
is that a reporter at the New York Times reported this as if it were verified fact. That's my point. Is there any precedent for this? Like other news stories where blue chip reporters like Ian Austin of the New York Times have just... It's, it's really hard to find one, Jonathan. Well, I mean, there are precedents for it. The satanic ritual abuse uh, scandal during the 1980s, I think. That was, you know, thank you very much, Oprah Winfrey. Wall Street Journal did some good exposition yeah, on that. But you know where that whole thing started, satanic ritual abuse. It was the Catholic bishop of Victoria, Remy Duroux, and a local woman who talked about rituals in Ross Bay Cemetery. It started here in Canada, and it went all around the world. And of course, in Martinsville, is it Martinsville in Saskatchewan? All those poor people were convicted, and it was just nuts. So that's a precedent, I think. But yeah, it's hard to find another precedent for the kind of reporting we saw. But here, here's the thing, I think that it's important not to lose sight of this. Sure, Rose Casimir said things that she regretted saying by what she was already saying within three or four days. But what's key is that happened on a Thursday. The New York Times came out and all the, you know, on the Friday and everybody else went nuts. That weekend, Trudeau lowered the flags on, on the parliament building. By Monday, he said they're all coming down across the country and they're staying down. For five months. For five months. And Tuesday, Rose comes out and says, well, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. My case is this. Every single one of these incidents in which that added up, and the way you read it in the paper still, is 1,300 graves discovered at several residential schools, which didn't happen, by the way. Prime Minister Trudeau is always out in front. It's like this big social media craze. You have Carolyn Bennett, who is the Crown Indigenous Relations, uh, Relations Minister, saying, this is our George Floyd moment. We all have to, you know, kind of lose our shit, if I might use that term. I think there's a reason for that. And the reason is, of those four recommendations that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission made back in 2015, the government had six years to act on them and did not act on them. The government had spent about $4 million of a $30 million fund by the time the Kamloops story broke. They've since committed $300 million or something like that to the, to the effort. Find out what kids are missing and where they might be. The very first interview with Perry Bellegarde, the chief of the AFN, he was trying to point so this AFN, out. AFN, that's Assembly of First Nations. It's, it's the lobbying group for chiefs and council. The Assembly of First Nations. You know, he was trying to point this out, and there were reporters who, on national television were, who were hectoring him, saying, how many of these mass graves do you think there might be? How many thousands of children who ran away actually are buried in one of these mass graves? And it just, you know, like Lloyd Larat, who's an elder at Calasis, one of these sites in Saskatchewan, said, well, you know, the media came along and they picked up on this, you know, unmarked grave story and it took off from there. Well, they wanted a Rwanda or a Srebrenica because I, they, they have this horror film in their imagination. They wanted this to be like that. And I'm sure you've seen that because your article, well, 6,000 words, just meticulously researched. I don't think you had to walk anything back in that. It appeared in the National Post, mainstream newspaper. No, I haven't. You come out to. and you say, look, what happened in residential schools was terrible, but in the case of these people claiming there's human remains, no remains have actually been found. People will come and say to you, oh, I get it. And are you going to deny the Holocaust too? Yeah, this is important. I've been to Yad Vashem twice. When the, when the Polish government says, well, you know, the Poles weren't really involved in the, in the Holocaust. 
you have to be specific and precise and factual. You have to have the names. You have to know where these people are buried, how they died. And I think, you know, there are a lot of people who've been saying, oh, that gravity is just a genocide denier. Sometimes I think they actually know why that would really get to It's kind of curious that while I was doing the research for this, I had to take a break. I had to go to Montreal and give a, a talk at the 30th annual symposium on genocide and the Holocaust. And a lot of my journalism in the last 20 years has been about the genocide of the Uyghurs, the genocide of the Yazidis, the genocide of the Rohingyas. I mean, it's not a field of study or journalism I am unfamiliar with or not associated with. And I'm also, I mean, I co-authored a book with the survivors of a residential school. And so, yeah, it was a little weird. And you can see why people don't want to challenge the narrative. Just look what happened. They had the chairman of the Canada Council for the Arts basically saying nobody should interview that Terry Glavin guy. He's a bad person. What was an even um, bigger deal for me, and this predated your article, is when Mark Miller in Trudeau's cabinet, who's in charge of what's now described as nation-to-nation dealings between the federal government and First Nations groups, he tried to smear an academic who wrote an article talking about some of the holes in this apocalyptic narrative that's come out. And Miller uh, tried to smear this Quebec academic as, as a denier. And everybody knows when Mark Miller says denier, there's a square bracket term that's basically he wants people to read Holocaust denier. That is the absolutely clear import. Yeah, to me, exactly. that's an absolutely disgusting thing to do. 100% shameful. The Trudeau government perversely has become highly vested in this. You know, sometimes people take me to task. They say, well, you know, this, this is an indigenous tragedy. Who are you as a white person? To... Justin Trudeau is white. And to yeah. me, he became a political profiteer of this because last year there was a federal election in late 2021. And one of the big narratives that his liberal government often have is we're the kinder, gentler, more multicultural party, unlike those horrible xenophobes and bigots in the conservative party. And he squeezed this lemon for all it was worth, going down on one knee. And I'm so cynical at this point about this issue that even if Justin Trudeau knew there was something seriously wrong with the story on day one, I still think he would have gone through with all this because to him this was election gold. And to have Mark Miller, his fellow liberal, going out and smearing anybody who interferes with this narrative as a denier, to me this just highlights how a lot of prominent white people have hijacked this story for their own political ends. And I don't know that you are being cynical. I've come to conclude that what's really going on here, and we see this with Trudeau in any number of issues. He's kind of a, the way someone put it to me was that he, you know, this is like um, a social media marketing strategy in charge of a G7 country. And I, by the way, I'm someone, I like Justin, or at least I, I liked him before he decided he was going to become the human embodiment of an ultra woke Twitter account. But to a certain kind of social justice mindset, this kind of issue, they have a vested interest in warping it yeah. in the direction of, I think, a falsified apocalyptic narrative. And it must be doubly unsettling to an indigenous person who, who watches this tragedy, or at least a narrative about this tragedy, be hijacked basically to get the liberals reelected. Well, he had a number of motivations. And I think one of those motivations was he didn't want anybody to notice that he had not spent any more than three or four million dollars, I think it was, on the commitments that were made in 2015 
to map these grave sites, to archive what we know about missing children and so on. And he, he didn't want anybody to notice that. So immediately I'll lower the flags and start blaming the church. This is a story about religion, Jonathan. Indigenous people and the Catholic Church and the religious orders have a very complicated and storied and troubling relationship going back to the very first days of colonization in Canada. And, and there is a kind of an indigenous, indigenized Catholicism that has risen from this. If you see it through religious terms, what Justin Trudeau is doing is, in all of these instances, he's kind of imposing a new belief system on Canada with his messianic zeal, a way of talking about Canada, way of talking about Canadian history, Canada's place on the world stage. Oh, who are we to judge? We shouldn't be saying wicked things about the Uyghurs because we had residential schools. It is about belief. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is the thing that concerns me, is that we are conflating knowledge with belief. The Chinese government jumped all over. Yeah, there's been a lot of work done by the forensic lab at the Atlantic Council on the, the uses to which the residential school story has been put by Chinese propaganda platforms and the Chinese government. And at the United Nations in Geneva, actually, Canada had, had, had managed to organize a number of countries and we were gonna force the United Nations Human Rights Council to you know, send investigators into, into Xinjiang. And the, the Chinese got together with the Iranians and Syria and Venezuela and preempted that effort. A, a huge rhetorical strategy of Beijing. And you know what? I don't blame Beijing for doing this. Who are you hypocrites to, to lecture us on this when you're going down on one knee with these maudlin displays and you're calling your own country a genocide state? If you're going to hand dictators a, a propaganda image like that, don't be surprised if they use it. Well, it wasn't just Beijing that used it. It was Trudeau's own appointed senators in the Senate who, who preempted a full parliamentary acknowledgement of the genocide in Xinjiang using this pretext. So, you know, it has, this is a big story. It, you know, Canadian press, oh, newsmaker of the year. What I'm interested in is what is this belief system that we're supposed to impose on the real world? So describe that belief system. Canada is and was a, an irredeemable white supremacist, colonialist, apartheid settler state until Justin came along and he's one of the nice ones. <laughs> and the liberals will be nice to you. And we're going to make, you know, we're different from all the rest. That's really crude, but that's basically it. And now a message from one of our sponsors, BetterHelp Online Therapy. So the pandemic is ending, and maybe you're one of the many people who expected that as soon as things got back to normal, you'd be feeling back to normal too. If not, it could be because you've gotten burned out without even knowing it these last few years. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment or fatigue, and more generally, it can include no longer feeling as much joy or satisfaction in the things that you usually love doing, such as, oh, I don't know, writing or podcasting. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. So give BetterHelp a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, 
and Quillette podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. For a few years, I worked at a highly progressive, uh, to, <laughs> turned out to be too progressive for me, Canadian magazine that at the time, and this is, I guess, the mid-2010s, portrayed Canada in a completely different way. The dominant view among progressives in Canada was that Canada was a light unto nations as compared to the United States, which was this evil, imperious warmonger. Yeah. We were multilateral, we were multicultural, we were pacifistic, we were environmental. The, the world needed more Canada, uh, soft power. We didn't lock our doors, we don't have guns. Oh, yeah. Michael Moore. Yeah, Michael Moore came here and it was like paradise on earth. And then... Suddenly, a few years back, like around 2017, this thing flipped and I was like, no, 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 forget all that stuff about how we're light unto nations. We are white supremacist, genocide state. That's what I mean when I say new belief system. This unmarked grave story, I, I believe one of the reasons people seized on it, despite the fact the evidence for it was thin, is because it put meat on the bone for this really abrupt ideological transformation in the self-image of Canada on the left. Yeah, I think what, there's every once in a while that kind of agenda, if you like, really bears itself. This whole concept of residential schools denialism was actually invented by a University of Manitoba professor by the name of Sean Carlton. And he's been going around saying, oh, this person's a residential school. He was kind of inventing this concept that requires clairvoyance, by the way. It's totally unobjective. That person had said more than once when you know all of the churches were burning across Canada and these retaliatory actions and working class churches in East Vancouver were being vandalized. This was a scandal in and of itself because dozens of churches were torched and you had politicians, including Justin Trudeau, basically staring at their shoes. Oh, they're saying it was understandable. Because there was no crime that couldn't be excused as an emotional spasm. And it's like, well, yeah, you got to understand people are angry. They're angry because of the bullshit way the story was reported. Well, they've been incited. And then reporters are treating themselves as heroes. And now silence. You must have had journalists emailing you saying, I wish I could say that. I did. I'll get into that. But just I, the reason I raised Sean Carlton is that you mentioned that kind of shift, you know, from Canada being this, this place where American draft doctors run for freedom and all this kind of stuff to this irredeemably racist colonial settler state. And that's what made this reckoning so different there was this narrative paradigm that had to be enforced about Canada's wretchedness and the, the, the horribleness of Canadian history. And Sean Carlton, more than once, said, you remember when Harshal Walia... The head of the British Columbia branch of the, if I remember, the Canadian Civil Liberties... Well, the churches were burning. And, and I should say, many on Indian reserves. And those churches were beloved of the people in those reserves whose ancestors had built them. And in not one instance of one of those churches burning, was there not great weeping and lamentation? <laughs> I'm telling you, it hurt to see those little churches get burned. And she said, burn it all down, right? Burn it all down. And then when people started to notice, this, it's like, my God, you know, what the hell? You're supposed to be the head of the BC Civil Liberties Association. Then you have Justin Trudeau saying, this is understandable. Sean Carlton was saying, this is just a distraction. We need to change this conversation back to Canada's racist, colonialist, white supremacist history. 
So that's that's really what the agenda has been. And it's not just Sean Carlton. I mean, big deal. The guy's a joke. But, you know, it, it's pretty weird to wake up in the morning and see a press release to the effect that the Canadian Association for Physical Anthropology, the Canadian Archaeological Association, four or five groups and university faculty saying, yeah, that Glavin guy is a residential schools denier. I mean, that was pretty weird. <laughs> but there isn't, a, there isn't a news organization in this country, a, a major news organization that reporters and editors have not phoned me and said, hang in there checking in on you, making sure you're doing okay. And interestingly, a number of indigenous, fairly prominent national indigenous intellectuals, academics, activists have done the same thing. They said, okay, Glavin, we know who you are. You're okay. You stay the course. It must be a very difficult time to be an indigenous academic. If you go off script on this thing, I'm guessing you're going to be called like kind of an Uncle Tom. Or worse. You know, there, is a, there was, for instance, I, I got a copy of a site inspection report written by a consulting architect who does this for a living of the Kamloops Indian Residential School site, the, the orchard, which shows that, well, you know, about a third of the orchard actually has been excavated over the years. And nobody's ever found any human remains. And if you look at what kind of excavations were done and the pipes that were laid and also the agricultural work and the furrows that were laid, you would get these things on a GPR survey that would be kind of lined up and would would give the impression of graves or something. But calling them probable graves in the view of this individual is pretty outlandish because the probability is that these were trenches and pipes that were laid and any number of other forms that were imposed on that little landscape there. And no, no burials have ever been found. And that consulting archaeologist is terrified of his identity being known because of the career implications. This is the thing that really, I think, is really disturbing and people should keep their eye on, is the fear. There's what we might know. There are facts that we might want to discern and discover. And then there's what we are obliged to believe. And these things have been conflated. We have to believe that there are 215 children in the ground, or in some iterations, that 215 bodies were discovered. This is all about belief. It's not about what we know. When I talk to ordinary people, like people who don't do podcasts and journalism for a living, just from following the news, they're surprised when I tell them that 215 actual like skeletons have not been removed from the ground. Because from following the media, they would get that impression. Try telling them that the remains of 1,300 children at various residential school sites across Canada were in fact not discovered last summer. Yeah. We talk about Kamloops. My view, Kamloops was kind of like the meteor hitting the earth, but it wasn't the most observed of the stories. I think one of the, the probably the, the weirdest was the story of the Akham people, their Tonaka community at St. Eugene's, the old St. Eugene's residential school site. Imagine being Chief Joe Pierre, waking up one morning and discover, you know, reading in The Guardian and what Al Jazeera and CBC, reading that you had announced the discovery of, what was it, 280 graves at a residential school. He'd said nothing, nothing of the kind happened. And to this day in The New York Times, what you just said. Yeah. Uncorrected, completely uncorrected. And at Calasis, 
you know, so that was the bulk of them, 751. You read the headlines, there's still up. That's where Justin Trudeau did his photo op with the teddy bear. Yeah, he took a knee with a teddy bear. You know, the chief there, Cadmus uh, Delorme, really a great guy. I mean, he's been trying. Can you imagine being in, a, you know, in these awkward positions now? Anyway, he was explicit about this. He said, this is, this is a Catholic cemetery. The National Center for Truth and Reconciliation has only, has only identified nine Marietta students on what it calls its memorial register. They may be buried in that disused, forgotten about cemetery, but nine is a long way from 751. So, you know, the more you look at each of these cases, the, the story just crumbles and falls apart in just about every case. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Damn it, I know, I know people who are genuinely described as survivors. But it's until this moment that people who were viciously abused in, in residential schools were capable of sitting down with people who had a fairly reasonable time in residential schools over coffee in the same little Indian Reserve house and having a conversation and being kind to one another and recognizing that the truth is what it is and experiences were mixed. You cannot have those conversations anymore. If you do, you're accused of being basically a genocide killer. So that's weird. That's pretty weird. So what's next for journalism? Like, do they ever walk this back or? <laughs> like... I don't know. I don't know how this absolute avalanche of error is, is going to be <laughs> dealt with. It's kind of embarrassing to be a journalist right now. Well, <laughs> Terry Glavin, uh, on that cheery note, thanks for joining the Quillette Podcast. It's a nice talking to you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.